Thanks to Albina Community Bank for supporting Biz 503, the new business talk show on Portland Radio Project. Albina is banking on all of us. With its homegrown headliners, transplant rock stars, and diehard fans, Portland is at or near the top of musical cities. It's home to hundreds of people who make their living performing, recording, and promoting music. Good afternoon. Welcome to Biz 503, where our topic today is one that's close to our hearts as a community radio station that highlights local artists, how musicians can make it in the music industry. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project. And I'm Cindy Tortorisi, business consultant, executive coach, and master connector from The Link. We'll be your hosts this afternoon. The music industry may be the one industry most changed by the rise of digital technology, and those changes continue every day and seriously impact the ability of artists to make a living. You're going to love our panel today. We have folks here who know for sure how Portland's music scene is meeting the challenge. With us today, Chris Young, editor-in-chief and founder of Vortex Magazine. Andre Middleton, Community Services Coordinator at the Regional Arts and Culture Council, RAC. Jason Fellman, Promoter and Booker at JFL Presents, and much more. And Portia Sabin, President of the independent record label Kill Rockstars, and the host of the podcast Future of What. Welcome to you all. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yes, you're welcome. Glad to have you here. I want to first get an overview, and, and maybe you're the best person to offer this perspective, Portia. Can you give us a a review of what happened here? I mean, it's all about technology, the changing nature of the music business, but what's causing all the challenges for musicians today? Give us a little historical overview. Well, I think the internet is is the easy, simple, straightforward answer. And um, basically, we had an economy in which you were able to produce a product a CD or LP, and you could sell that product in the marketplace, and you could be pretty sure you'd make a certain amount of money. And record labels like me would make budgets based on the amount of CDs and LPs that we thought we could sell. What happened with the digital revolution was that we went from being, you know, having a, an idea of how many units we could sell and there, and that's how we would base our budgets to, well, you may sell absolutely nothing or you may sell, you know, half what you sold before or a quarter. It became a completely different marketplace. And as a result, record labels across the board are much more skeptical nowadays about taking a chance on new artists. And that's the real tragedy of this really is is for artists. They don't have the same opportunities that they used to have because now who's going to invest in a product that may or may not sell. It's super ironic though, because we all value music so highly. It may be the most uh, influential cultural influence on our lives. And yet we've devalued it as a society. Exactly. And I mean, music is turning up in more places than ever before. And everyone wants music to represent their product. You know, it's in video games, it's in apps, it's in, you know, commercials, movies, everywhere that you want someone to feel an emotion or have some sort of connection, you find music. And yet, how do we how do we make how do we ensure that that music keeps getting made by people who are true artists into the future? So I'm curious about how the distribution changed. So you said if it will sell, but did the distribution avenues change as well? Through a, lot the internet? Of, a lot of things happened sort of at once. The biggest problem, though, was that um, with when MP3 technology was allowed to happen, people found out that a, a music file is much much smaller and easier to take than, let's say, a whole movie. So people were able to download these little tiny music files for free, and then they were able to share them amongst their friends in a really, really easy way. So that's actually what happened 
was the ability. And, and, and the U.S. government did not help us out because they did not jump in at that point and say, this is copyrighted material. You guys can't do this. Mm-hmm. So we were let down mm-hmm. on many levels. One of the things that's interesting about this is that the technology also has created challenges for the live music community as well. For example, it used to be that if you wanted to figure out what was playing, you would have to go to the quote-unquote meeting place. And so that would drive a lot of the attendance at venues. Venues were known for having, you know, socially active scenes, certain types of music, so on and so forth. Now with the internet, people don't have to go out to find out what's going on. And so I think it's been difficult for live musicians in venues to figure out, well, now that you know, all the action isn't concentrated in a really small number of places. How do we reach people and bring them out and generate some of that ticket revenue that is lost? So it's interesting how it's impacted both the distribution and the live music community here. And streaming has uh, created a- another revolution. Can you talk about that? Uh, streaming has created another a, a big problem because streaming, it, well, I'll just start from the beginning. So there are these three major labels, right? And they did deals with, with Spotify when Spotify came to America. And what they did was they got a huge lump sum advance, which is non-recoupable to their artists, which means they don't have to share it with their artists. And in exchange for that huge lump sum advance, they negotiated a tiny back-end rate for royalties. And the independent community, which is over 10,000 labels in America, was left with that. We were never, because we are 10,000 individual labels, we can't negotiate as three, you know, just three little entities. Spotify didn't approach us individually. They just said, well, here you go, guys, this is your rate. And so the industry as a whole has the significant problem where we have, you know, 0.0043 cents per stream. And we did not get to participate in that huge advance non-recoupable to the artist. So everybody lost on that little transaction. And now we're still dealing with it because the market has moved so significantly into streaming. And I talk about this on my radio show all the time. The numbers, the most recent numbers show that 70% of Spotify royalty is for songs that are on Spotify playlists, which means that 30%, you know, we, in other words, if you're not on a playlist, if you don't have a song on a playlist, you're not getting listened to on Spotify. And I believe Taylor Swift is the only person who can make a choice not to be on a particular platform. Adele. (laughs) <laughs> and Adele, that's right. Both of whom are, are in independent labels, by the way. I think that basically what you've said is, is that there have been these different revolutions in technology that have left the artist as the most devalued or least paid person oftentimes in the scenario. Yeah, but I guess I'm, I'm not sure if that's anything new. It's often been that the artist has always been the last one to get paid or the last one in the change. So you look at a lot of these things as being problems, but this is just kind of the way the world is now. So I think that it's more constructive to see, like, how can I adapt to the situation or how can I actually thrive in the situation? So, well, technology has broken down all of the traditional models that were out there, artists do have a ton more opportunities when it comes to how they can reach people digitally online for little to no money out of their pocket. You know, artists that blow up on platforms like SoundCloud or something like that and then go out and headline festivals. It's kind of a crazy phenomena. There's a band out of Bellingham, Washington called Odessa that is probably one of the biggest EDM acts right now. And that's exactly what they did, you know. So it's it's always been like this in the industry that this rags to riches story is not going to be true for everyone. But I think that you just kind of look at the picture, you know, this is what we have now. So how can we thrive in this current situation? 
And to add to that, um, I know of a local label called Zam Zam Sounds that has really diversified their revenue streams. They release some um, LPs exclusively. They do some put some remixes on SoundCloud, but they're actually selling a lot of merch via the, via the web, whether to Etsy or through their own site. So I think a lot of people are realizing that music in itself needs to be part of a larger package of how the artists sell themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I could not agree more with that statement. I, I think that's the, the, probably the theme if you look at sort of, you know, whether we're talking about careers or revenue opportunities in the music business is that maybe in the past you might look to others to sort of deliver you to the promised land, for lack of a better phrase. And I think now it's sort of the, the epoch of the self-starter, the entrepreneurial musician, the musician who looks for other revenue streams. I mean, I think musicians who are successful today, you know, they develop the business skills out of necessity. So this is awesome wisdom. Where does a performer gather to, or network as the case may be, to get this kind of information? I feel like you're setting me up here, so I'm just going to say it. <laughs> so, you know, there are various organizations throughout the city. Um, I know Local Roots, that Robert Richter has uh, uh, been a real big supporter of music education. Rack is a resource as well. Yeah, we really are. Granted, for a lot of people, the perception of Rack has been mostly towards visual arts and other performing arts. But over the last couple of years, Rack has been holding workshops as well. And I also just want to say, I think we have, a, a, in general, a philosophical issue in this whole thing, which is that a lot of times when artists start and they're young musicians, it's something they're doing for fun and it's something they're doing with their peers. And it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like a real job. And I feel like we need to help people shift their mindset to understand if you want to be a career artist, that is possible. It's, you know, it's a, like Chris said, you have to cobble things together nowadays in maybe a different way than you did before. But at the same time, there's so many more avenues and people are starting things for themselves left and right. If you have an entrepreneurial spirit and a sort of an eye for an opportunity, you can put yourself together. I just interviewed Simon Tam of The Slants, who's made an entire career out of playing anime conventions where there were no artists at anime conventions. He noticed that and he was like, hey, my band play that he didn't even have a band when he when he got his first gig at an anime convention so it's you know you can do these things but you have to be serious about it and you have to think of it as a business you can't just continually i mean i was once at a convention and i heard an artist on a major label had made tons of money say well i never expected to make a dollar so i don't care that music is now free and mm -hmm. i was like well mm -hmm. but guess what your record label who spent five hundred thousand dollars on your last album they thought they would make a dollar you know the people who invested in you and the people who care you know, this isn't just about the sort of like, oh, wow, I'm, this is great. I'm a musician. You know, it's, it's, this is a business, guys. It's a business. You've seen both sides of that because from after being in your band, you went to the business side of things. And we have with us uh, in the studio today one of the most successful business entrepreneurs, Michael Allen Harrison. He's going to be coming up in, in another segment. And we're going to talk more about the resources that are available to local artists because that's why we're gathered here uh, is to, you know, to try to offer some useful information. But before we do that, I was wondering if somebody would be able to talk about, and maybe it's you, Andre, how many people are we talking about? What portion of our community are reliant on the music industry? And I you know, if, if you have any numbers, uh, I'm not necessarily talking about numbers, but I think it touches so many people's lives here. Well, I might, well, I might not have direct, you know, hard numbers. Um, one of the things that RAC is proud of with their grant system that they have is a lot of our money is passed through money. Um, when we give money or when we award money to artists to produce something, that money is distributed not only through them, 
but through rental agencies, through venues, through the production of posters and T-shirts. So like I said earlier, money that is distributed or that is, you know, not, I don't want to say given or is earned by artists, is spent by artists within the community. But obviously music has such a huge role, you know, whether it is a, a theater production, whether it is advertising agencies, whether it is a T-shirt or, um, or gosh, um, you know, local sneaker companies, music sets the tone. And uh, Portland with the, you know, Portlandia and the reemergence of the creative class has really been benefiting from the tone that has been set by a wide variety of artists in addition to musicians themselves. We're going to talk to some folks who have experience on the ground, local artists trying to make it, and some who have made it when we come back right after this. You're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Thanks to our sponsor, Albina Community Bank, a full-service, independent community bank and a proud sponsor of PRP. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project, co-hosting today with Cindy Tortorisi of The Link. Today we're looking at the inner workings of Portland's vibrant music scene. We're learning about how industry changes have impacted how folks create and sell music in the city and beyond. We have joining us uh, some folks who can tell us what it's like to work day-to-day producing, pitching, and performing music in Portland. And I just found out that Kivit Bednar is also in the crowd. So, so jump on in here, Kivit. He's one of our uh, volunteer DJs here at Portland Radio Project. We also have with us Alistair Lee, a musician and producer at Honest Audio. Jessica Garcia, who is manager for Amber Sweeney, who's a PRP favorite. And... Very successful working musician and PRP board member, Michael Allen Harrison. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for being here. Michael, you've seen many sides of this being in the business and so successful for as long as you have. What do you say to young musicians who want to make their living every day in music in Portland? Well, as I was listening to the earlier panel, two things came to mind. They were talking about you have to think business. Okay, well, that's really, really important. But but the key is being an artist is you need to share honestly, and that business will come to you. So as you know, just as an artist and, and just expressing yourself in an honest way because that's what people want. It's what they can relate to. Well, it's, 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 we want to connect with one another, and the best way to connect is really through music. And so whatever your genre, whatever your niche is, you know, create it from your heart. That's number one. Create who it is that you who you are and what you want to share. It's just about sharing what you're creating. And then, then there's the business side. How do you get that out to people so they have an opportunity to hear it, to love it, to support it, and to keep coming back? And so it's, uh, it's really not that difficult. It's really that simple. It's just about sharing it. And now in this new world of the internet, you know, I started making LPs back in 1984. And then it was cassette tapes. I missed the eight track. <laughs> I missed that. I missed that era. That was dodged that yeah, I missed it. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I was uh, making cassette tapes and then, and then all of a sudden LPs disappeared. And then I was making CDs and then cassette tapes disappeared. And, and then all of a sudden it's MP3s and CDs 
were disappearing. So the amount of CDs that I was selling shrunk to almost nothing. I, I, don't, I don't distribute to, to, uh, to stores anymore. Right. I, everything now I sell online. So fortunately, I'm curious about technology and I've kept up with things. So all of my stuff, even my whole back catalog, everything is registered on the, this wonderful internet. And so my exposure and sales in, in that world, for somebody who, the kind of music I do, I don't get airplay. I'm not out in, on, you know, regular radio stations. We play you at Christmas. Well, there you go. Yeah. But, you know. I listen yeah. to you all year round, Michael. Yeah. But where, you where are you going to hear my music? It's on the internet. And live shows. I mean, mm -hmm. I do a ton of live shows and I love to perform, mm -hmm. you know, so. I want to talk yeah. about, the, Jessica, you're uh, Amber's manager, as I mentioned, and the message, like Michael shared, it used to be, you know, buy this album, buy this CD. What's the message now when you're trying to promote an artist? Um, I, don't, I don't think that, that it's changed too much in that respect, um, because you still want people to buy your album, buy your music, but you just buy it in different places. I think the, the biggest thing that I think that Amber and I have ran into is, you know, trying to, trying to expect an artist, someone like Amber, to have the multi-brain of, of, though she's very business-focused, that, that's not her specialty, that's not her, that's not where she creates. And so there's, there's people like me who step in and who, who don't know how to create music, but I know how to create the buzz and I know how to create the ideas and I know how to create the, the selling of the music and the selling of her, really. It's just becoming a salesperson. So having those, how important it is to have those two, those two brains that connect that can really create something bigger is, is really vital right now um, because people are expected to be their own, their own music, their own music business, uh, like Portia was saying. And so you need somebody that can pick up that business end, uh, so you're not expected to do everything. Alistair, you want to jump in on that? Yes, I, I really concur. And something that Michael said earlier about being honest, really, it sort of struck me, not because my company's called Honest Audio, but, <laughs> um, but because I really feel, feel the same. I think that quality sells itself, and good music generates money as a side effect of itself. And in order to generate what people would call good music, there's something about writing from the heart, there's something about generating from the heart, and combining that intention, in my, in my opinion, with craft. And I think in a, lot of, in a lot of mindsets, particularly in the rock community, there's an absence of an attention to craft, and there's also a lack of access to learning about craft. So you put all of this weight on the shoulders of a single musician, and then you ask them to generate their own income as well through the work. And it seems like a magnanimous task. It's, it's Sisyphean or something, if, if that's even a word. But, and, and that's, it is about the guy pushing that big rock up yes, the hill, right? And, and so, you know, it does seem to me like you have to go horizontal in order to really generate, if your goal is more income, larger amounts of income, retirement income, if these are some goals, you have to go horizontal and bring somebody else in next to you who is going to really let you focus on your art and let you focus on your craft let you focus on what is selling, what is working in my performance, while really attending to the business aspect of things. Yeah, I, I actually would really agree, man. It's like uh, there's a certain amount of uh, genuineness um, that, uh, you know, when you talk to someone and you watch their interactions and you kind of pick up on their micro expressions, you can tell when they're being disingenuous a lot of the time. You know, a grimace is not a smile. We have a different word for it or whatever. And uh, I think the same, the same can be said of music, you know, the... the 
If you're not creating from the heart and creating something genuine and trying to find what you can put forth in a genuine way within the constraints of your sort of who you are, you know, because that puts some restraints on all of us, I think. But that's right, because I think restraint actually makes for good art. There was a lot of, lot of really good art created around, around constraints, I think, both in visual category, musical category, literary category. Um, in fact, that's a lot where a lot of people start. Is like by constraining the notes you're going to play, constraining the uh, the ideas you're going to put forth, and there's the art of everything has been made too. I mean, John Cage did silence, right? Famously, so <laughs> it's all been done. <laughs> but what what can you do legitimately? And I think the uh, the other the other trend that's really happening in the music industry right now is is patrons. Patrons are coming back. You know, it's less about. I mean, where we had large industries, you know, there were five major labels. Now there's four. Sony and Universal merged about. Five, five or six years ago. So now there's only four major labels, which mm. I think is good because it's going to increase the granularity. There's m- going to be more sole proprietorship around ra- record labels. More people are putting out their own things. In fact, I noticed in the, uh, in the metal community, a lot, of, a lot of big artists are putting out their albums on multiple labels, multiple small labels, neuro recordings out of Portland, actually, that um, has artists like Ufo Mahmoud on it, but they also have Yab, which is a Eugene artist, you know? And Ufa Mahmoud is a huge Italian artist, and they're on a lot of different labels. And this is sort of a trend I'm seeing is like, you know, people who are passionate about the work in the music industry, the, the business end of it. You wanted to mention something that just came over the chalkboard. Yeah, board. we had something on the chalkboard that they're curious, and so am I actually. Why is Portland such a musical hotspot, and how did, it, how did we get to this place? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. So since I'm the oldest here on the panel, <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, when I first started out in my young 20s, I had, I had a fusion band. And, um, and one of the legends here who carved a path for all of us in the jazz world was Tom Grant. And so because of Tom's art, you know, and what he was expressing and his popularity, there were, all of a sudden there were jazz venues all over the city in every hotel and, you know, all sorts of little jazz clubs downtown and also into the suburbs and whatnot. So... Because of Tom, I got to ride that wave at the beginning of my career, and I had this this great contemporary jazz group, and 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 then so I got noticed by Kink FM 102, and so I remember, yeah, and they started playing my music, <laughs> and then I was doing more of my piano solo stuff, and so I got picked up on their Lights Out program, and then that went national. So so there's there were some gems i think in the early years um and also the other radio stations the rock stations and whatnot they were supporting local music in a very very big way and all the outdoor festivals had so much local music and really good music and and musicians and artists who really woodshed it really honed their craft and so that really started this really great big wave for music, you know, here and and I do think you yeah. raise an important point, and and it's one that speaks to what led to Portland Radio Project, and that is that radio stations used to be the driving force behind local music. They would present various artists. It used to be, and then now we have a, a station like PRP, which we're all very proud of, that is continuing that spirit 
and and it's so important to have that. And that spirit continues on. And we've been talking about this internet thing. It continues on in the internet. And I I was at Mississippi Studios the other night uh, to see Haley Johnson. Oh, and she's so good. She was unbelievable. And I hadn't been to Mississippi Studios in a while. It was smaller the last time I was there. <laughs> and I'm seeing this growth, and then seeing the crowd there, and the enthusiasm. You know, so it's like a great restaurant where everybody knows your name. All of a sudden, some kind of magic thing happens. And so some kind of magic thing happened here in Portland, and it continues. Go ahead. You know, I think yeah. some of that magic was uh, specifically Elliot Smith, Larry Crane, who runs Jackpot, who is sure. Elliot Smith's archivist, Sleater Kinney and the Decemberists, who are, you know, basically independent artists who, who really achieve major label level notoriety and really brought a certain cachet to the environment of Portland, Modest Mouse, now has a studio in the Southwest. They've had a studio there for a little while. So really, really important bands that have managed to thrive in the digital era, uh, kind of coming out of, of guidance of people you know, like Larry Crane, who's just an amazing and important figure in our community. I really think that they kind of help generate the buzz of what's going on out here, and they really attracted a lot of people. Not to mention Pink Martini and yes. Storm Large and so on. Quarter Flash. Quarter, Quarter Flash. Flash. And New Shoes and whatnot. And... You know, there's been some really great artists that have come out of here. Maybe this is a place yeah. where people can write from the heart. Maybe it encourages that. That is well, a lot of magic. Well, it's an easy place to live. It's getting harder, though, as far as well, you expense. Know, the yes. income thing. Yeah. No I was just going to ask, yeah. how do we keep the talent in Portland? I mean, I, and I don't know enough about this, so this is coming maybe from a naive perspective, that, that artists want to go to a bigger market. I think it goes in waves. So uh, I'm from Austin originally, and I uh, kind of watched it go through some slumps music-wise, and then also come out of it. I don't know. I feel like there was uh, a bit of a, a bit of a slump there, even in the late or in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and I've watched it come out of that. There's bands that are blowing up out of there again. Uh, the Sword is is a huge band now out of Austin, and then also Sweet Spirit is coming on the come up down there. They're doing really well. And there's a number of other bands that uh, I feel like the, the scene is alive again and, and there were a lot of people at shows, you know. And so I think that's going to happen here too. You know, it's going to get big and there's going to be a lot of people move in and they're going to fight the music industry a little bit and they're not going to like it that the clubs are loud and around their, their apartments and stuff and they're going to complain and then the music's going to get shut down. And then there's going to be a reaction to that. And so I hope that, you know, the art will be perpetuated through that cycle. Well, coming over the chalkboard's a great question. Most of the venues that we have here are play for free. How do we move from this level to actually getting a few bucks for our efforts? So as great as it is to talk about creating from the heart, musicians have got to get paid. That's a great question because that's something that we run into a lot and Amber and I obviously have lots of discussions about because I am the business side and she is the performer side. She She's made to perform, she's made to create, she's made to go out and play. So how do we have an equal, you know, a medium where, where she does get paid, but she, she can't play for free all the time? And um, honestly, it's, it's, um, it's, it's each individual uh, musician that has to make that, that call for themselves. They do have to make a stand. They do have to make a choice of saying, you know, this is, there's only so much that I'm going to do because it just burns inside of me. And then there, there's part that you have to do that says I have to get paid. And I, you run into that a lot with festivals, I think, too where the last people to get paid is the musicians. Uh, that's, but that, that's a trickle-down effect where I think it's happening in the schools. That's the first thing 
that gets cut, cut. in the schools is mm-hmm. the, the music budget. So now we have all those same people running, running festivals and running uh, venues, and it's the first thing that gets cut is the music budget. So everything else stays in place. So how do you change that mindset? Okay, Alistair wants to make one quick point, and then we're going to take a break because we have all the people with the answers to awesome. the marketing yeah, in so, the next segment. So there are just some really difficult realities. The businesses that are going to be paying you are operating on bottom lines as well. And this, this really speaks to something that Chris sort of brought up about diversifying your capabilities as a musician. And what I would, the way that I would respond to that question online is to say, study, study, study. Find a way to teach yourself to expand your skills. One of the main reasons that I produce, generate music, mix music, master music, you know, and actually record music is because I was not getting paid at the venues. My own music, maybe it hasn't flown yet. Maybe it'll fly, fly more in the future. But there's a really hard bottom line that all of these businesses are trying to maintain. And so it's really, really valuable to expand your skill set so that you can actually expand your audience. My audience is now not just listeners. It's musicians themselves that are hiring me to help them as well. Well, you know, as you were saying earlier, making music is really the magic. And getting it out there can be the challenge. We'll talk about the marketing, the booking, the snagging, a record company deal, and more after a short break. You're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Thanks to our sponsor, Albina Community Bank, a full-service independent community bank and a proud sponsor of PRP. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project, co-hosting with Cindy Tortorisi of The Link. Today we're digging into Portland's music scene and talking with industry experts about how technology and new generation of listeners are changing the game. Now we'll be speaking to folks about the gap between making music and making it big. Joining us with tips for becoming successful in the music industry are Lori Hughes-Kellen, talent buyer at McMinimins. Well, I think you're called the corporate hotel booker. Is that right? Either is fine, really. I mean, the hotel corporate... As long as Booker is just designating the specific rooms that okay. I deal with. So. All right. Peter Von Shaver, arts and entertainment attorney at Sound Advice. Great to have you with us, Peter. Great to be here. Because I have a big copyright question for you. And Portia Sabin, co-founder of Kill Rock Stars, the label. Thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for having me. And Portia, let's just start with you because right before the break, we were talking about musicians having to cobble it together. That's absolutely true. That's exactly what's happening these days. We're pulling it together, musicians and and even labels. We're trying to find ways to make a living. And basically, uh, that means through, you know, merch sales, touring, whatever type of physical you can put together, you know, trying to maximize your streaming. I mean, just every avenue and then creativity on top of that. So, Portia, I have this question. How does a talented person find a record label and how do they or how do they choose the right record label? Well, I think the the biggest thing I can say to that question is that we and many other labels that I know will get on board when you're already doing it for yourself. That's sort of the way that it really works in practice. So if you have put together a great band and you have a great live show and you've got some great songs and you're touring and playing shows every night and starting to maybe need a manager, you know, if you have enough business to do that you can't keep up with yourself that you need a manager... You know, at that point, and people are starting to come to your shows and people are buying your music on Bandcamp or whatever, you know, that's the point when labels start to get interested uh, and other people 
you will find if you do that, that that's when people start calling you. And that's definitely what you want. You know, I think the in- this industry, just like probably every other industry, you know, I go home and turn you know, open my email and there's a hundred emails from young bands. And I'm like, well, guys, you know, you're emailing me and I don't want this to turn into the relationship where the- then later on I do put out your record and then you call me from home and say, have you made me famous yet? because that's not what this is about you know bands have to work just as hard as labels or harder Porsche's point is 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 so perfect because you have to do the work and you get rewarded for your good work and so when we were talking before about being honest about your craft you put the time and you do good work it doesn't matter what you do whether you're an insurance salesman or, or or a musician if you do good work you really work your ass off and you become good People will notice, and, and that's exactly what you're talking about. The most important thing is the content, number one. I could have been more surprised than when I invited you to the show today, Michael, and wondered whether you were sort of a different creature than a lot of the other working musicians that we're talking about because of your level of success. And you said to me, I am unemployed until I get my next gig. I'm just like those people because I'm unemployed until I get my next gig. I'm still unemployed until my next gig. You know, it's, it, when you become an entrepreneur, you know, um, you, you're only as good as your next gig. You know, one of the things I do at my Christmas shows, which have been so successful, we, this was our 25th season, and we did 25 shows. We saw 7,500 people this year. Wow. And so that's really quite an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I do about three, I always warm the crowd up, you know, kind of like Jay Leno. I come out a few minutes before, and we, we chat a little bit before we start the show. But I always ask at least three or four of those shows, how many are here for the first time? Half of the people in my audience raise their hands. Wow. And so that tells me that my marketing is working. Mm-hmm. The money that I spend you know, for those uh, commercials on radio stations and whatnot, and, and all my social media that I've learned you know, how, how to do. And, and also, every year I give away, let's see, we gave away 2,000 tickets this year, and most of them to, uh, to families who otherwise couldn't afford it, but then also through my sponsors. And so I'm getting new people that way. Mm-hmm. And so my point is you need to be generous at, at all your shows. You know? So if you have a show that's a 500-seat venue and you experience maybe 50 people showing up, well, the next time, give away 450 tickets. <laughs> Good thinking. Because, it's, it's, again, you know, I, you're not getting the money anyways. Get bodies yeah. there so the next time you have a few more bodies. I've been doing this for years and years, I just giving away tickets like you wouldn't believe. Okay, let's talk. Lori, talk about the McMinimum's venues. I mean, how do you guys choose the musicians you're going to employ? Well, it, it depends. Um, we have a lot of different venue sizes and models for is it venue by venue yes each venue chooses its own yes. artist uh-huh. yes very much so for well for example with my venues we do a lot of free and open to the public shows so we're looking for you know creating an environment so to speak and so we have a certain maybe type of customer that's going to come to that particular venue so the winery experience is going to be different than going to St. Francis and Bend. Those two crowds have different needs and different wants in terms of who's going to show up and who's going to stay in the room. So when it comes to what I'm doing for my booking, I'm choosing artists that are going to fit the needs of the room. So the other thing to keep in mind, especially if you're a new act, 
these rooms don't necessarily have a natural draw all at the time. And I think that's really important, kind of tying into both what Portia and Michael are saying, that if you're a new act, a lot of the onus really is on you to develop yourself and reach your audience. Because as a venue, we are looking for you to partner with us to bring business in. We're going to have some of that. You know, we're going to have some people in the room. But, um, you know, if we can have 30 bodies instead of five in the winery, we're going to be a lot happier, everybody. So you do have to, to, to work to reach your audience to bring people yeah, in. Two big things for an artist to think about. A, great content, and then proving yourself. Yeah, Those are two exactly. big looming items. Okay. I, I think it's important to keep in mind as a new artist that just because you're talented, there's also another set of what you're worth on top of that as well. And a lot of new artists write great content, but they haven't built the reach yet. And so they think that they're worth a certain number. But if you're looking at it from a, a business aspect, you have to cultivate that worth. What, what, are, what are you bringing to the table when you're talking to a venue? And we have a couple guys who can talk about how to do that. So Jason Fellman, come on back in here. I just, and I know you have a workshop you're going to be doing with Chris. Is that what you want to talk about? Well, actually, no, but they can check that out on okay. the PRP site. But go ahead. Um, but the, the one thing I wanted to mention around this, because I, I deal with booking a lot, is the, it's a fundamental philosophy of musicians, which is I always suggest rather than be looking for gigs, be looking for fans. I guarantee you, if you are good music, you know, if you have a good quality product and you spend your energy on fans, the, all the doors will open up to you. Really, if you're good and you develop your fan base, you will not have a problem getting gigs, period. I think that's a really great point because I think what happens with musicians a lot of times is they get obsessed with the gates. You know what I mean? Like, I want that gate. I want a manager. I want a gig. I want a label. But they don't see what that actually like what do you do next okay you got a label what do you do next well I go home and wait and then I call and say did you make me famous yet and like no that's not actually how this works there's so much more work and and that's why I always try to say to young musicians be serious about this from day one right this is actually your livelihood if you want it to be it's a little bit difficult because it's kind of like saying okay I want to be a plumber but I've never fixed a toilet so it's a little bit difficult because you don't, you don't necessarily know right out of the box how hard life on the road is, how, you know, how many days you have to tour, how many sacrifices you have to make. Like, oh, your girlfriend's going to miss you when you're out of town. Yes, that's true. She will. So reconsider the girlfriend, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are, these are serious issues that you have to think about before you get started. Because the biggest takeaway I can give a band is if you actually achieve any level of success, I'm sure Michael can, can speak to this, it's just going to get harder. There's going to be more work. So that's actually how you have to think about this. It's not like you reach a place and then you get to go retire and drive a fancy car around. You know, it's just it's work and then more work. Yeah, the more work is, uh, yes, is so, so true because as you gain success and, and you get fans who connect to you and they look to you for a certain experience that you've provided for them and they want to come back and feel that experience. And then if they're coming back more and more, they want to feel a new experience on top of that experience. So you're under pressure also to perform at an even higher level because there is a certain expectation. And if there's a certain song that they really love, if you don't have that in your set, they're so disappointed. <laughs> you know. And so they make an emotional connection. And that is really important to make that emotional connection. But also, it's really important for the artist to honor that connection and to keep that connection going. And I think that's, that's really been the key thing 
uh, to my success here locally. I've, I've, I've lived here in the Northwest all my life. I ventured out a little bit through the United States and a little bit over in Europe and Israel. But mostly I have stayed here at home, and, and I've really enjoyed just, you know, uh, a beautiful regular business that I can uh, put my kids through college. I can pay my mortgage payment and my car payment and whatnot, be able to go on a vacation now and then. And, you know, so I feel so blessed and lucky to be supported from this community in that way. But you have to stay connected. That's so important as an artist. My husband once said to me years ago that the way that musicians, the, the equation for musicians is it's 10% talent, 5% luck, and 85% hard work. Yeah. And I think that that's absolutely true. Absolutely. You know, I always think about, I used to manage this Portland band called The Gossip back in the day, and we were in the process of going gold in England in 2006. And the moment that that happened, everything got exponentially harder. It was up at six in the morning, do drive time radio shows, then makeup and hair for a photo shoot, then an hour and a half of interviews, then, I mean, it was so much more work and it was like, well, do you want to do this work and get to the next level? I mean, is this how we're, we're doing this? And it was, the answer in that case was yes. But for a lot of bands, it's no. Because they're like, oh, wait, you know what I mean? I can't sleep till 2 in the afternoon and then you know, <laughs> go call my girlfriend and then drink and then go on stage. You know, Because that's all it is for me. You have to make a commitment to this. And that's the unsexy part of being a musician. I want to get Peter uh, involved with the conversation here. This is Peter Von Shaver. He is an arts and entertainment lawyer at Sound Advice. How concerned do artists need to be with issues like copyright? Well, very concerned. I mean, really what I do working with a lot of bands and labels, it's copyrights and contracts all day long. And, and for people to not have a fundamental understanding about the income streams that relate to copyrights and contracts, you're, you're going to be out of the game from the get-go. And really what it's all about, it's the music business. And doing a little bit of education, the more artists can kind of get those resources and learn about those aspects of it, it's totally crucial. And you can solve a lot of problems and not get uh, screwed over if you understand copyrights and contracts. And those are things I totally hammer home with everybody I work with. And even very successful musicians, they can go a long way without understanding that stuff. And um, But most people are going to be roadkill unless you have some kind of grasp on, on those concepts. So, Peter, at what place in their career should someone find a lawyer or learn about these aspects of the business? Well, it or when of, do you see them? Yeah, part of what we've, we've talked about is folks getting up the, a couple rungs up the ladder. And when things become more complex, when you're dealing with contracts, with managers, with, with, with venues, with anybody else, it's... Do I not understand this? That should be the triggering point for somebody to get some more qualified assistance with it. And really, it's a lifelong learning process. Even pros I work with, people that have had top 10 hits in the United States, <laughs> uh, they, they still don't have a full grasp on some of this stuff. And they have to do refreshers every once in a while, especially with publishing income or things like, um, you know, just all the fundamental things that you have to know where the money is. There's a lot of folks who are in the business for a long time, and they wonder, why am I broke after being having this level of success? And a lot of it is because bad contracts or bad things like that. So it's really a fundamental thing from the get-go. So where do they get educated? You know, I'll say school hard knocks, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of them, or a lot of this is just, uh, you know, resources or talking to other bands. Um, everybody's got a horror story about something bad that happened to them, uh, bands that have been around for a while. And learning from their mistakes. There's also a lot of things through the musicians' union. There's other uh, resources in town, a lot of online resources. But 
it's it's just kind of some of those fundamental things that uh, you, you have to get acquainted with. I just did an episode on my radio show about exactly this, which was Musicians 101 Basics. So how do you, just from the very beginning, so you have a band, what is that band legally? What's the entity, right? Is it a sole proprietorship? Is it an LLZ? How do you deal with that? You know, we recommend to, we do, you know, if you are on a label, it's helpful because sometimes the label can tell you, give, give you some advice. We recommend that bands start two LLCs, one for everything and one for touring because you can be held liable for touring damn Like, for example, if like the Great White situation where the club burned down and all those people got injured, if that was a touring LLC where they did not have any actual stuff, that LLC would be the entity that could be sued, but they couldn't get anything because there wouldn't be stuff there. That's the very, that's the like, duh, basic, <laughs> I'm using my non-lawyer terminology here. Well, it's um, but it's important to understand that. But the, from the moment you write a song, you have rights. And you need to understand that. And you need to understand that right away. Because from, you know, you're owed money. You can be owed money if that song is played in a variety of places. You have to figure out how to get those. You have to figure out how to register with a PRO. You have to, you know, get a legal entity. You a just PRO. A PRO is a perform- performing rights organization like ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. And basically, you just sign up as, an, as a songwriter and boom, you're a songwriter. You also have to start a publishing company, which forget about it. Musicians get just their eyes glazed over at that point because publishing is such a bizarre piece of our industry that nobody understands. But anyway, so there's several things that you can do right away, and I would always suggest do it right away. So do it even though those little teeny tiny point oh 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 fractions of royalties are going to come in. Well, what if it turns out you wrote a hit song? Yeah. Don't you want to make sure yeah. that you... What if somebody covers that song? And and publishing is really the kind of retirement plan for a lot of musicians. It's really just having that kind of uh, nailed down. There's some artists I work with that have had things that, to this day, they're they're these evergreen sources of income, um, and it's super important to understand publishing or to make an effort to do it. So, Michael, I'm curious, because my impression is that you self-publish. Yeah, well, I'm an ASCAP sure member. Wrong. I've been an ASCAP member since 1984, and my publishing company is called Eagle Putt Publishing. And I actually still don't know what that means, but <laughs> but but what it is. But I'm registered, and and so all, all my stuff is registered properly into the system. And then you know, every quarter I get this check in the mail, and sometimes it's fairly large, and sometimes it's you know twenty three dollars and nine cents, you know. And so so it's really important. Uh, from the get-go to register, even if you really don't understand. It's easy just to get on the Internet and just fill out the forms and come up with the name, and boom, you are, you're registered. And, and who did you register with again? ASCAP. So there's two of them. It's either ASCAP or it's BMI, and they function the very same way. And then with each of them, so you have your name registered, and it's divided 50-50. So your name is registered 50%, and then your publishing company is registered 50%. So you're still getting 100%, but for some reason they divide it up. And so so I just came up with a name. I love to golf. I've never had an eagle putt. I've always wanted to have an eagle putt. You know, so I, I, so I call my company Eagle Putt Publishing. And, you know. Okay, burning you know, inspirations that you want to share. So this is sort of a big money question. This is for listeners who might need some guidance on making a lot of money. And I personally cannot provide this. This was provided me by Sam Martin, who's a global hit writer. And Sam moved to Los Angeles because the community out there has a lot of money. 
There's a lot of money moving that city. And if your goal is to make a lot of money and not specifically anything else in the art of music, then you can set that for your goal. Sam spent five years in Los Angeles trying to write hits, hit after hit he tried to write, and he scored. And, you know, he's doing well, and he's making his money off of the publishing. Because so many people, there's en- even though there's so much pirating going on, there's actually enough purchasing that you can really do well just as a songwriter. And all you need is your voice, a really intention, a real intention to your craft, a study of all of the hits, and a piano or a guitar. Laura, can you just tell artists what is their best approach to getting a gig at McMenamin's? And will they always be paid? Yes, of course. Um, they will. We do offer guarantees quite often for a lot of the rooms that I book. We do have several different deal structures in place. So, you know, it, it's uh, you have to be willing to negotiate. And again, I'll say this very, I'll stress this. What are you bringing to the table? That's first and foremost. You have to ask yourself that question all the time. There are a lot of talented people out there and we're seeing a lot. It's like drinking from a fire hose. So you can make our jobs easier by letting us know right away what you're worth. How many people are going? you going to expect coming to the room? Don't inflate your draw to get the gig because if you do and we're disappointed, then that's going to hurt our trust in building the relationship. That's the other thing I would say. You have to know that you are building a relationship. People are people in this industry, it's people doing business together. So even though we live in a technology age, it's really easy to email links over and email videos over. You do have to recognize that you're trying to develop a relationship with someone on the other side. And so you have to develop trust, have patience. Sometimes it can take a while, um, especially with an organization like ours. We have a group of people that have been playing for us for many, many years. And again, they have already earned that spot and built that trust. So I may not be able to get you in right away. Don't take anything personally. That's the number one advice because you may not be a good fit for a certain room. There might be, you know, um, we might, one room might be catering more to a jazz community. Another room might be more of a funk community. Know who you try to do your research in advance and know who you're targeting. Yeah. So that's, that would be my best advice. Thank you so much. You guys are like the A-list of uh, the music business around the Portland area and elsewhere. And we thank you very much for taking your time and uh, coming to be with us today. Thanks for the kind invitation. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Albina Community Bank for supporting Biz 503, the new business talk show on Portland Radio Project. Albina is banking on all of us.